Our nation needs restoration and revival, and these require courage. We cannot truly declare the gospel of Christ Jesus while simultaneously being in lockstep with the world, using the same eyes to see the world, the same language to discuss the world, and even possessing the same interest of where to invest our energy as the world. We must be like Nehemiah and courageously learn to say no to ungodly things within our world. Thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and today we're going to be studying Nehemiah 5 and all of the great exemplary things that we learn from Nehemiah throughout his memoir. So today our message is titled, A Time for Courage, and we're going to be comparing courage to moral confusion. So I hope you enjoy your time with me today, and I thank you for being here. Let's open up in prayer, shall we? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together. Lord, I pray that you open up our hearts and minds and each and every one hearing this message. You will come to us, give us peace and joy in life. Lord, give us a firm backbone to say no to the unholy things of this world. Let us see clearly and have eyes as you would want us to see. Let us use the language you want us to use and let us be righteous people who are not discouraged or swayed by the corrupting things of the world around us. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So courage itself is something we've got to talk about. Courage is not merely one of the cardinal virtues, for courage is altogether unique in its relationship to virtue. Rather than being a virtue itself, courage is the willingness to test virtue. And when I say test virtue, I don't mean that we're testing it against God, but instead we're testing it against the world. Truly, courage is one's willingness to test the holy teachings of God. It is a willingness to step out into a hostile world in order to declare the holy and true principles of God, while also firmly rejecting the beliefs, arguments, and even language of the world. You see, if the world can get you to use its language, then it can get you to see with its eyes, and it can cut you off from God's virtues. A great way to get someone to step into a belief system, into idolatry, is to get people to use certain language. And throughout human history, we see how people have really controlled and manipulated. That's basically the course of human history. This idea that people are free and independent and respected as individuals, where they say, you, as a person over there, your personal life matters. No, that's very unique in human history. And it's something which Christ comes and teaches people for the first time. And even in our world right now, a lot of this is being attacked and trying to be destroyed. And one of the ways that people are pulled away from righteous eyes, as God intends for us to see, is by using the language and arguments of the world. You know, do you sit around and be in lockstep with the world, only talking about the things they want you to? And when you talk about the issues that are real in our world, do you use the language the world uses? If someone were to take an, take an examination of your vocabulary, is it lined up more with scripture or is it lined up with what Hollywood and the news media talks like? Well, regardless of, of all that, I'm not here to beat people up just for their, their choice and diction, but I am here to encourage us all to, to say no to the things of the world, including that language, but also to say yes and positively affirm the great and holy virtues of God. And that's where courage comes in. Courage is a willingness to stake your life, and as Nehemiah shows us, even the lives of your family and your neighbors, to stake your life and those around you on the holy principles of God in opposition to the various matters to which the world demands we bow. The world is filled with orchestras of idolatry, just like Nebuchadnezzar had back in the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And one of the fascinating things that we learn about this is the orchestra of idolatry, it's actually pretty dumb. It makes people lower their IQ and believe that they actually like things that are really dumb. It doesn't permit truth. It's not a place of great debate and critical thinking, but instead it is a place where people don't even know what is right and wrong and people get emotionally 
well, they get emotional sensations over things that they probably shouldn't. And it really is a very, very dumb place to be. And it's very sad. And it's, this is how courage is removed from society. It's quite strange. But nonetheless, it's true. And we've got to wrestle with it. And we've got to overcome it. We have to be conquerors with Christ. When we look at our world around us, we have to ask ourselves, what is courage? And when we look to our Holy Scriptures, we get wonderful examples of courage. Courage was found when Jochebed, she ignored the laws of Pharaoh and trusted her son Moses' life to God as she placed him in a basket and lowered him into the river. This is a great example of courage, but it's not alone. You look again and you find courage was found when David stepped to Goliath, that monstrous and terrible Philistine who had taunted the Israelites by cursing their God and demanding a worthy man be set before him in battle. And once David stepped to him, Goliath despised his very being. He hated him. And there, if you look to 1 Samuel 17, 43-44, Goliath says to David, he says, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And then that great and terrible Philistine cursed David by his idolatrous gods, and he continued to taunt him by saying, Come here, and I will give your flesh over to the birds and to the wild animals. But yet David, he responded to this in courageous faith. That is, he had a willingness to risk his life on the holy principles of his God. And he said there in verses 45 and 46, he said, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I shall strike you down and cut off your head. This is real courage. And it's fascinating that even in the midst of the, the banter that goes between two warriors, the kind of trash talk they have, David is making principled arguments on his God. It's fascinating. Now, Nehemiah, and we're studying Nehemiah right now, Nehemiah, he had the courage to leave behind the life of a cupbearer and do something that no one else even had eyes to consider. And that's a very importantly juxtaposed sentence. He was doing something that no one else even had eyes to see or a motivation to act upon. He cast a vision because he saw something. He saw the holy principles of God and was willing to act on that. He cast a vision for his people, and this risked all of their lives. It wasn't something which was fun and dandy and everyone was happy to go along with. No, Nehemiah's courage it stirred up a deep hatred from all the worldly nations surrounding the people of God. And the courage of Nehemiah and his workers, it awakened a visceral hatred that grew stronger at the restoration of every stone. They despised that somebody was coming to see the well-being of the people of God. And moreover, they despised that someone was coming to sacrifice. Sambalot and Tobiah, they make a point of being enemies of God. They hate the holy principles of God. They despise it. They hate truth, nobility, and honor. And this is something which is found throughout the world. Yes, people are actually sinful. They do want to make themselves out to be enemies of God. And yeah, they really do hate truth, nobility, beauty, things that are lovely, things that are of good report in the entire list that you find there in Philippians. And what I want us to do right now is realize that when we look around the world and there are people who get angry, they, they buckle down, they, they lies, they get grosser. And we're in a day and age where I did not know that bearing false witness could happen so publicly out in broad daylight without any accountability. But it's where we are. And one of the ways that you know that you are truly with God is when all of those who espouse evil doctrines hate you. You know, when all the right people are hating you, or perhaps I should say when all the, the forces of wickedness hate you and their worldly mouths, you know that you are actually doing something with God. So let us not be confused. 
The more you show true courage and live by the eternal principles of God, the more the forces of the world will hate and despise you. And you can know clearly by the fruits who is actually espousing the doctrines of demons. Because the doctrines of evil, they are to accuse, to slander, to instill confusion among your ranks, and to keep you from sound footing. There are people who want to reject the idea of absolute truth, absolute morality. They're the people who accuse you and say that you cannot escape the accusation. Just by existing, you are guilty and there is no forgiveness. It's not like God who comes to us and recognizing that we're all born sinners offers a way of salvation that is purchased by him. We don't have to perfect ourselves, but God will. No, people on this earth, they hold themselves to a standard that is more idolatrous than anything you could imagine. Going beyond the standards of God, they say, we accuse you. You are guilty of this. You've been privileged by that. You are evil. You are wicked. And there's nothing you can do that will ever appease us because these are the doctrines of demons. They only want chaos and destruction. And you don't know them by what simply comes out of their mouths, but instead the fruits of their actions. Because a lot of times these people, they'll just outright lie and bear false witness. But we need courage. We need courage to defeat this. And we must defeat it. Courage, it is essential to revival. For without courage, we cannot live by faith and the church cannot be the church. If we go back and consider the day of Pentecost, the church could not be the church if they had not been transformed as a people once the Holy Spirit fell on them. You know, the people, they were so moved by the Holy Spirit that they bound themselves together by the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, and yes, to the prayers. They voluntarily held their lives together in common, and they tested the principles of Christ-like forgiveness of mercy in their world. And, as a result, they were hated for this. They were cast out of popular society. Yet, the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day. Now, if you look back to the day of Pentecost in the early church, had people acted the same after receiving the Holy Spirit, then there would be a fundamental contradiction. There would be a breakdown in the laws of reality. There would either be that, or the Holy Spirit would be proven to have no power. For you see, one cannot be transformed by the Holy Spirit and also live according to the world. And this is the same with salvation. If Christ comes and saves us, but there's no call to virtue, well then salvation means nothing, because sin actually has real-world consequences. If Christ saves you, but you still live and endlessly do sin, well, you know, there's really not a lot of merit to salvation. There's nothing special about the kingdom of God. You know, heaven itself would not be heaven if its throne were not surrounded by the bolts of lightning and the great peals of thunder. As we look somewhere like Revelation 4, we must understand that the great throne of heaven, it demands the power of lightning. It demands the indescribable beauty and the constant declaration that God is holy simply because He is. If God's kingdom did not demand perfection, then it would be indistinguishable from a fallen creation. Therefore, when we examine this, we should be filled with joy by the fact that we are not required to perfect ourselves, but instead we are perfected by Christ who calls us to courageously test the way of life here on this earth. And when we consider the throne of heaven, it, it brings us to a beautiful truth that God came to us, stepping down from that magnificent throne, but nonetheless carrying its power. God stepped down and came to us to call us to courage. God came to us saying, Fear not that which can touch the body, but the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And there's great assurance in that. Go and you read through the book of Revelation. You see that great illuminated throne room, and there's great beauty, and there's great assurance in that. Because rest assured, even if people hate you, they hate us, they kill us, they kill you, we can have assurance that the same power that sends booming peals of thunder across heaven 
with its indescribable beauty, that will give us a new life in the kingdom of eternal truth. That same great and absolute power that is the throne of heaven, that also gives us great assurance that its unmatched authority will bring us peace for all eternity. Now, the tools of revival, they are not of this material world. We need revival, we need restoration. And when you look somewhere like Nehemiah, you know, the machines for building Jerusalem in 52 days, they weren't really purchased by Persia. A lot of times you'll look and say, well, Persia gave money, they gave all these letters to Nehemiah, but the truth is, you can have all the money in the world, you can have all the letters in the world, but unless you have people willing to go out and do the work, nothing's going to happen. No, the machines for rebuilding Jerusalem in 52 days, they came from within the hearts of the laborers. The machines that moved earth and stone were not elaborate contraptions exerting great mechanical advantage, but they were the multitude of hands belonging to workers who set their eyes on the holy principles of God. And, while considering this, we must also remember that their numbers didn't start off strong. In fact, it was a lone cupbearer who opened their eyes to the holiness of their God. There was a man who was in a position that wasn't particularly masculine, but he was the only man willing to be a man, so he stepped up to the plate and he called all of his brothers and sisters to step up and be the men and women of God that they were designed to be. And this is revival. It starts off with individuals who see with eyes for God's truth and they spread the fire to others around them. It doesn't happen by outsourcing our courage to experts and institutions and waiting on some other leader to step up to the plate for you. No, that is the doctrine of the demons that wants to keep you from revival. It doesn't want you to be personally involved in it. It tells you to go, go back, stay in your lane. No, no. If Nehemiah had stayed in his lane, then we wouldn't have this beautiful book and there wouldn't have been the great revival that was. No, that is the doctrines of hell itself wanting to keep you from revival. You yourself must be personally willing. And even if the whole world decides that they aren't going to be willing, step up to the plate. And this requires courage. Nehemiah cannot have revival without courage. He must test the holy virtues of his God. Again, this is not against God, but it is against the world around him. And this means his eyes are set on the virtues of God, and he is not highly concerned with what people say about him. And as the chapter unfolds, we find ourselves eventually to Nehemiah chapter 5, which is where we are today. And we find that there is a problem internally. And Nehemiah's revival, it cannot only be challenged from forces without, like we often think, but instead, one of the great challenges to Nehemiah's revival comes from within. And it's here that we're going to take a break from, really, the, the sermon part of this and actually step into the reading of the Word itself. I want us to go now to Nehemiah chapter 5 and read what happens and where there is internal division among the people of God. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. And others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still there were others who said, We have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax in our fields and our vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, we have to subjugate our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, yet we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And when I heard this great outcry and these charges, I was very angry. And I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and the officials, and I came to them saying, 
You? You are charging your own people interest? So I called together a large meeting to deal with them, and I said, As far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? They kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. And so I continued, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olives, groves, and houses, and also the interest that you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And then I summoned the priest, and I made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. And I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So much may such a person be shaken out and emptied. And at this, the whole assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until there the thirty-second year, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those who had preceded me, they placed a heavy burden on the people, and they took forty shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. And their assistants also lorded it there over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men, they were assembled there for the work, and we did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. And in spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were quite heavy on these people. Now remember me with favor, my God, for all that I have done for these people. So it's a fascinating thing. You know, this chapter comes in the middle of a great amount of work. You know, chapter 4, it is this beautiful time where Nehemiah, he's fighting against the enemies of the people of God. Chapter 3 is the people coming together. They've had their eyes opened. They are awakened to the holiness of God. They're building. It's very much like the throne room in heaven. It's very much like the day of Pentecost. And it's even very much like the great garden of Eden where God is walking with his creatures. They are living and doing as they are supposed to do. You see throughout all these chapters, the people, they get awakened to who they really are. They go out, they build, they get dirty. Some of the nobles, they're building a thousand cubits. The jewelry makers and the goldsmiths, they're doing a little bit with the perfumers. They're all coming together. Their families have reunited. They're working with their neighbors. The children are out. They're all building and living as God intended to them to live. They're building a society where none may live in shame. Then the great enemies come, Sambalot and Tobiah. They want to bring confusion. Nehemiah says no to them. He picks up a sword in a trial, and they're willing to fight and build at the same time. But here in chapter 5, you find that the problems really are also within the house of Israel. There are people who have, well, they have wickedness in their hearts and they're doing dishonest things with one another. Now, Nehemiah, he would not have revival if the society he built was filled with dishonesty between his people. 
And it's fascinating that in this chapter, we only find out that Nehemiah is appointed governor after he has successfully transformed Jerusalem inside and out. Not only has he made an outward declaration of what he stands against, but he has also made an internal declaration of how the people of God should live. Nehemiah's revival, or Nehemiah's revival, it is built on principles. And when he finds out that people are mistreating one another, he tells them, there in verse 9, what you are doing is not right. He doesn't make a technical argument or legal argument. He doesn't come along to them and say, well, you broke this code, but I'm not going to hold you accountable for your beliefs. You know, we, we didn't really want to fire you or remove your credentials, but now you did something that really is, you know, a bit bad. Uh-uh, no, Nehemiah doesn't do any of that. He makes a moral argument. He comes to them and says, what you're doing is not right. Have you no fear of God? And on that, he holds them accountable. In this text, it reminds us another thing that our modern world wants to obscure. This text reminds us that people are not sanctified by being oppressed. In other words, people are not made righteous by experiencing harsh things in our world around us. And this itself is a harsh truth that our modern world wants to ignore. People who are made victims in this life will easily turn and make victims of others. And this is particularly true with violent crime. Just because someone has suffered something great does not mean that they will treat others righteously. All of the people of God had lived in shame and desolation, and even Nehemiah references that they had been selling themselves to Gentiles. But yet, even within their own ranks, they were viciously mistreating their neighbors. Even though all the people of God had lived as second-class citizens to the Persians, they'd been kicked around by different empires, the Egyptians, then they, after Pharaoh Necho II, Nebuchadnezzar comes, then they have Belshazzar, and then Cyrus and Darius, and all the way down to Artaxerxes, they've been kicked around by all these different people, Nonetheless, within their own ranks, they are viciously mistreating their neighbors. It takes something which is of God to sanctify people. It takes something that is aspirational to sanctify people. Just being surrounded by victimhood and oppression does not give people moral clarity. It doesn't give them a good set of eyes to differentiate between good and evil. That's a tragic truth. It's very unfortunate. It's one of the most diabolical things of fallen creation. Our modern world wants to lie about this, but unfortunately, it is the truth. And the sooner we wrestle with that, the sooner we can actually bring blessing and restoration to the people around us. And for the final portion of our message, I want us to contrast two things, courage and moral confusion. Courage and moral confusion, they are utter opposites. And Nehemiah's memoir exemplifies this. If we go back to chapter 4, Sanballat and Tobiah, they had conspired to defeat Nehemiah and his workers by sowing confusion in their midst. Now, when people are morally confused, they will fall. People who do not understand what good and evil is are not going to go out and test the virtues of God. This is a very logical thing. People who are morally confused will not be willing to be courageous and test virtue in the world around them simply because they do not know what is actually virtuous and what is counterfeit. And to just give a clarification, moral confusion is not an emotion. A lot of times we associate confusion with emotion, and that's not what I'm doing here. So perhaps maybe my language is a little bit lacking, but I'm trying to be precise about something, so have a little mercy with me. What we find is that moral confusion, it's not an emotion, because a lot of times people who are morally confused, they firmly believe what they're doing is right. No, moral confusion is where something within our heart, mind, and soul, there is uncertainty. There's a lack of clarity about what is good and what is actually evil. Sometimes people do think they have clarity, but they're not lined up with God. 
Moral confusion is really just this dislocation of morality where you are separated from God. Your moral compass is not lined up with what is truly good and what is truly evil. And what you find is that people who are morally confused, they will not be courageous and test the virtues of God in their world around them. In fact, they might test the virtues of something which is counterfeit, which is very common in our modern day and age. We are surrounded by counterfeit and fake virtues. You know, if something is plastered all over commercials and companies put it out there, it's probably not a real virtue simply because people are not naturally sanctified. And furthermore, companies, they like to go out and test things and find out what is the least offensive. So, you know, for whatever it's worth, we're surrounded by counterfeit virtues. If it's put out there in popular culture, it's probably a fake virtue. Now, when people are morally confused, they are also easy to be, well, conquered. They're also easy to be consumed by evil. One can only apply the virtues of God in their life if they're actually focused on them. Now, division that comes from within is one of the most destructive forces that can afflict the people. But at the same time, unity for unity's sake, it too is a fake virtue and it's insufficient to hold people together. Only through common vision of the common good can people hold together in a singular pursuit of righteousness. In Nehemiah 5, there is great moral confusion among the people. They are being wicked in the way that they treat one another without any accountability at all. And as Nehemiah articulates, they had been doing this for generations. The moral confusion must be dealt with if people are to truly experience revival. And that's something which we must learn in our own day and age. The moral confusion, the moral chaos and corruption must be dealt with if we want revival. We've got to give people clear eyes to see. We've got to cast away the arguments, the language, and the interest of the world and start looking at the interest of God. Nehemiah, he is building a noble people, and that requires transformation of every life that is found in Jerusalem. Nehemiah, he demands an oath on God's principles, and he realizes that in order for Jerusalem to truly be a society where none live in shame, then they must treat one another righteously. This is absolutely necessary for Jerusalem to reflect God's love as his chosen city. And in our modern day and age, the forces of evil, they try to keep us from courage by sowing moral confusion. Our nation has been greatly damaged by ignoring the fact that all are sinners and in need of transformation, and that forgiveness is a gift from God. And forgiveness, it is something which brings peace. We look at our world right now, and there's a lot of moral confusion. People have not been allowed to teach absolute truth and absolute morality in our public sphere, and we are seeing the consequences of that. Depression, despair, and suicide are all rising for a reason. Affirming people in their natural desires, it does not actually bring meaning to them in life. It doesn't actually bring that lasting joy and fulfillment that people are hungry for. You know, it's fascinating. Very often in life, our world is both hungry to be reconciled to God, but also very hateful towards God. The idolatrous spirit wants young people to be, well, they want them to stay put in their natural desires so that they will never be stirred to courageously stand against the world. People are so easily manipulated and misled when they are morally confused, and it's a tragedy what is being done with our young people. And we live in an era of great moral confusion. And evil is emboldened when people do not believe in absolute truth and absolute morality. The forces of destruction hate restoration and love moral confusion. Our modern age likes to accuse people based on their skin color without permitting forgiveness or truth. People are told they must look at one another in groups and not as individuals. But God comes and tells us. We look at each other as our neighbor, as individuals where we weigh their hearts. We don't look to extrapolate or put something that is unrelated to their personal life on them, but we look to people and weigh out what's really going on in their life. 
But our modern day and age does not want us to do this. The possessive spirit that comes towards us, and it really is a possessive spirit, it obscures personal guilt with an unfalsifiable collective guilt that can either be proven or disproven, but it's out there and you kind of are forced to go along with it, even though it's ridiculous and absurd. And everything with it goes in one direction, towards chaos and destruction. And that's not an accident, folks. That's by design. Those who pursue excellence and seek to rise above their own sin are slandered and muzzled, while those who want to be idle, those who want to destroy, and those who love to bear false witness, they are all encouraged to advance their depravity and are often aided and abetted in their great and terrible sins. Tools like political correctness and mob rule are used to silence truth and ensure that the public sphere is totally free of God and His holy virtues. You know, the idolatrous God of this age, it ensures that there is no accountability for the wicked but instead perpetual slander against the righteous. Perhaps the most terrible of all of this really is that moral confusion I mentioned earlier, the moral confusion that is injected straight into the veins of our young people. Fake virtues such as equality, tolerance, and inclusion, they have all conquered modern discourse, yet there is no meaning to them at all, without being coupled to a broader understanding that is based and founded upon the eternal principles of God no words really have any meaning, and these meanings that are given to people, they're all counterfeit and fake. All of this stuff, equality, tolerance, and inclusion, they all facilitate evil, which is quite extraordinary. They're basically Trojan horses of words come to bring people destruction. And the idolatrous God of this age knows this. And it also knows that the only thing that can defeat it is the gospel of Christ Jesus, and thus it has trained people to reject virtue, to live meaningless lives, and to only allow meaningless things in the public sphere. It's so sad because when people reject virtue and live meaningless lives, they are never challenged to pursue holiness, and it is a great, great tragedy. And our entire culture is possessed by the moral confusion and corrupt ideas, and it's going to take courage for us to stand against it. It's not going to be pretty. There's going to be weeping, gnashing of teeth, foaming at the mouth, and a lot of convulsions that go on. And there will be many who hate us, but to be assured in the power of heaven's throne. You know, Nehemiah, he would have failed in his mission had he cared too much about what Sanballat or Tobiah said. Yet he would have also failed in his mission had he cared too little about the sin that had crept into his own house. Nehemiah, he was willing to hold people accountable, but then, through forgiveness, move on and thrive as the people of God. And in our modern age, there are many who have been infected by the destructive ideas that possess our culture, people who have bought into these fake and hollow virtues. But we come to them if they're willing to repent, then we must be willing to forgive them and welcome them into our ranks. And revival begins here locally, in our local churches, when we are willing to courageously test the virtues of God against the world. So that's where we're going to conclude our message today, and thank you for spending time with me. Let's wrap up by saying the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. God love you, and have a blessed day.